May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Places of injustice loom large in a nation's memory. We hear the words, wounded knee, and think not so much about the city in South Dakota, but the massacre of several hundred Lakota Indians. There's more to Birmingham, Alabama than the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, but the place is forever linked to that event. So too, Oklahoma City and Dachau and Nanjing. Places of injustice loom large in a nation's memory. Our reading from Hosea opens with God evoking the memory of one of the most gruesome and shameful episodes in Israel's past. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, and there you have remained. What happened in Gibeah? What's recorded in Judges 19. A woman was betrayed by her callous husband, serially abused, and then suffered a form of violence so gruesome it does not bear repeating. It's a chapter in Scripture that's been aptly described as a text of terror. Well, that one act of violence led to another and to another and eventually to a kind of genocide. An entire tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, was nearly destroyed. The wound left by that disaster had never healed. That's what we're told in Hosea 10, verse 9. God's people were still living in Gibeah, as it were. And therefore, as the 11 tribes of Israel once encircled Benjamin, so would the surrounding nations now gather against them. They would reap the bitter consequences of their past and present offenses. Verse 10, they would be put in bonds for their double sin. This morning, we're going to continue in the book of Hosea, and I promise things are going to get better next week, (laughs) but not until then. And the first thing I want to say as we work through this six or seven verse unit of chapter 10 is a word about the power of the past. The power of the past. For Hosea and for the prophetic tradition of which he is a part, history matters. The events of the past matter. Why? Because they're so often typical of and determinative of the present. Hosea addressed the people of God nearly four centuries after the events in Nibia. But his audience still lived in its shadow. Since those days, they had sinned, and there 
they had remained. Are you all familiar with the concept of a moral injury? It was developed by uh, mental health professionals working with soldiers returning from combat. And the idea is that it's, it's quite psychically damaging to commit or even to witness a transgression of one's deeply held moral beliefs. Your body keeps that score, and you're never the same. I think the Bible gives us license to think about moral injury on a larger, more societal scale. As if to say, when the sins of a people or of a nation are not considered and addressed, their presence lingers. They become typical and determinative of the present. And we, we swim as a culture in very ahistorical waters. And so we may resist the idea that something that happened so long ago could still have such influence, such a hold on the present. But I think this is a real lesson that God has for us today. And I think there's something here that might inform our identity as the people of God. What do I mean by that? Well, in his first letter, Peter, um, the apostle, not our beloved rector, Peter, <laughs> he describes the company of Jesus' followers as a royal priesthood. So regardless of who gets to wear collars and fancy robes, we are all priests in some biblical sense. And what does a priest do? A priest represents people before God. And not just in ritual, but in, in prayer and in repentance and in lament. And perhaps part of our calling as a priestly people is to step into the uncomfortable place of naming before God the Gibeahs in our past and asking God to show us what repentance and healing and restoration might involve. So, the power of the past. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, Israel, and there you have remained. The second thing I want to say is about the power of attention. Doom and gloom predictions bookend our passage, but sandwiched between them is a more positive and allegorical description of Israel's history and calling. And it's kind of hard to notice because, at least in part, the verb tenses don't change in our English translations, but most of the people that I've read say that's what's going on in this passage. So why don't you take out your bulletins? And look with me at verses 10 and 11. It might be helpful. First, there's this image of a cow, a trained heifer. It's walking around a floor 
that's been covered with harvested stalks. And it does this to separate the grain from the ears of wheat. And this was a, a pleasant task. The cow could even eat while it walked. Such was Israel at the beginning of her history as she journeyed through the wilderness. A cloud by day, a fire by night, manna in the morning. She was not perfect, but she was obedient. She loved to thresh. Well, then God gave the nation a greater purpose. He put a yoke on her neck, so to speak. Not punitively, but for the task of taking possession of the land God had given them and establishing themselves as a covenant people. I will drive Ephraim, the Lord says. Jacob must break up the ground. And for a season, there was good synergy between the Lord and his people, like a plowman and his draft animal who worked well together to till the land. In verse 12, this uh, beast of burden, never thought I'd use that phrase in a sermon, this, the beast of burden imagery is dropped but the agricultural metaphor continues. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. God is saying to his people, be faithful, be loyal to me. Bring my law to bear upon every facet of your life. And if you do, I will shower righteousness upon you. You will thrive. And this was the divine intention behind God's choice of this nation. Humankind, a people, that is, a people would flourish in covenant relationship with God, and the nations would look at Israel and see the God that they worshipped and be drawn to their way of life. It sounds great, but there was one very profound problem. It involved human beings, people like you and me, people who 10 times out of 10 will cope with their own problems in their own ways, fashioning idols for themselves that they can control, not hearing and obeying God's commandment to have no other gods before him. And so Hosea's, I think, quite beautiful description of what once was ultimately serves as a criticism for what is. And the, the buts of verse 13 say it all. They were to sow righteousness, but they're planting wickedness. They were to harvest unfailing love, but they were reaping evil. Fresh, full body, delicious, super expensive produce was on offer, but they are eating the bitter fruit of deception. I learned this week that there's a type of fungus called stem rust. It existed in the ancient world and continues in different strains today. It's highly contagious, and it can easily ruin a vast and otherwise healthy crop. It's not a bad metaphor for what happened here. God's farm had been ruined, hoping for a harvest of righteousness the Lord looked out 
and saw only evil and injustice and fidelity. Israel being likened to a a vine or a plant, or God's people being imagined as a vineyard, pops up in Scripture all the time. In Psalm 80, Israel is like a vine that gets transplanted out of Egypt. In Isaiah 5, there's this famous section of Scripture called the Song of the Vineyards. And just think about the Gospels, how often Jesus talks about looking for fruit and finding none. But I'd like for us to think for a minute about the contrast that uh, Paul makes in Galatians 5, where he talks about the fruit that's born of or by the Holy Spirit, and then he contrasts that with what he calls the acts of the flesh. And he says, I think this is kind of funny, he says, instances of the latter are quite obvious. Sexual immorality, debauchery, selfish ambition, hatred, envy, jealousy. And he says to us that those who live like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. That warning is in many ways a parallel to what we get here in Hosea 10. Sowing righteousness is like bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And so I think it's, it's, it's worth asking ourselves, do the people that we rub shoulders with at work are in parks and pools, are, are in restaurants and bars, do they experience us as joyful, kind, gentle people? Or as jealous, envious? Fruit-bearing is an evocative metaphor because it's so multifaceted. And it speaks to the active and passive dimensions of our life with God. What do I mean by that? Well, just think about um, gardening. It involves a lot of factors beyond the control of the gardener, doesn't it? Weather, precipitation, the composition of the soil. There's a lot in gardening that you cannot control. On the other hand, there is work for the gardener to do. You have to till the soil. You have to remove weeds. You have to water regularly. But more than anything, to be a good gardener, you have to pay regular and sustained attention. I could spend three full weekends in the spring clearing a plot of land, removing the weeds, planting fruits and vegetables and flowers. But if I do that and then check out for three months, is my garden going to be a beautiful, copious place? Of course not. And so as much as, as, much as any single one practice or spiritual discipline I think what it takes to really bear fruit or to to keep in step with the Spirit is to simply pay regular attention to what's happening in your soul. Like, what kinds of things do you sense God doing in your life? What hard things is God using to deepen and enlarge your soul? 
What good things is God giving to you as a gift to help you experience his grace and love? I, you know, those are like spiritual direction type questions, but there's no rule that says you can't ask yourself that question. Or better yet, to talk with close, dear friends are in your, your neighborhood group. And I promise you, when you start to pay attention to the way God is faithfully present in your life, you'll start to notice that the sun and the precipitation, the nutrients are all there. And you'll start to see the weeds and the stem rust that choke out the work of the Spirit, and you will bear immense fruit. The power of attention. So the past, attention. And finally, I couldn't think of another power of, so... We're going to call this the great reversal. <laughs> I tried, but it was, I was forcing it. In, uh, in the second half of verse 13, Hosea drops the metaphor and he speaks directly to the cause of the ruined vineyard. He says, the harvest spoiled because Israel had depended on their own strength. Their fundamental fault was self-trust. They were so proud as to think that they could look after themselves. And instead of trusting in the Lord, they invested in and relied upon a military machine. And look, with logic that might strike us as unrealistic or naive, Hosea regards chariots and armies and soldiers and fortresses as a useless distraction in the face of the larger issue of faithfulness to God. Well, if Israel was going to enter the arena of empire, then God would allow it. And the results would be catastrophic. The roar of battle will rise against your people, we're told. All your fortresses will be devastated. Most scholars think that that verse was at least partially fulfilled with the invasion of the Assyrian army just a few years after Hosea. And by way of comparison, Hosea cites the destruction wrought by someone named Shalman upon some place called Beth Erbel. No one has any idea what he's referring to, but it must have been a meaningful and ominous point of reference. But I think what struck, struck most of our ears when we heard the passage was the part about mothers dying with children. Not a great text for the children being with us in worship. Uh, anyway, um, that was supposed to be funny, but... We know that this practice was not an uncommon way of waging total war in the ancient world. But the sting is that this is what God predicts will happen to Israel. And there's an Old Testament scholar named, uh, she's dead now, but her name was Elizabeth Ochtemeyer. And we've relied on her a lot in this series on Hosea, and I, I really appreciated her perspective on this text. She said, that God would bring such cruelty against the covenant people is a thought that gives us 
a great deal of difficulty, of course. But the Old Testament is the most realistic of books. When God gives his people over to their own way, and their fate is left to the forces of secular history, they become subject to all the cruelties and destructiveness of sinful human beings. Israel has chosen its own way and will reap the consequences. So the the scope of what's coming is stressed. So too is the speed with which it comes. At dawn, on the first day of battle, it says, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. The futility of trusting in your own strength will be exposed in the blink of an eye. You know the poem Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley? I heard about it from Breaking Bad, just to be totally honest. Um, it's, a, it's a poem about someone who meets a traveler from a foreign land. And the traveler tells of this vast statue with trunkless legs of stone standing in the desert. And there's a description on the mantle. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. It's a bit ironic, though, because that statue is now a colossal wreck, boundless and bare. Nothing beside its ruins remain. Hosea is saying, this is the fate of all the strong and mighty who disregard the Lord. The power of the past, power of attention, and a great reversal. And by way of conclusion, I want to try and say something about the gospel. One of the gifts, and frankly, one of the challenges of preaching from the Old Testament is that we see how rooted our faith is in the bloody and beautiful reality of human history. We don't hear a lot about sin as this abstraction. We see a nation pursuing religion for profit or dashing about the international world to build allies and secure weapons. And we see the judgment of God take concrete form in invading armies in leveled cities. When we see Israelites suffering for moral injury, when we see them subject to the full measure of cruelty and destructiveness of sinful human beings, I think we are led to think about the other, capital I, Israelite, Jesus Christ who was crucified, it says in the creed, by Pontius Pilate, not in the tides of misty history, but by Pontius Pilate, upon wood that was as real and durable as the slab on our altar. Jesus was the, the true king of Israel who was completely destroyed as day dawned on Holy Saturday. So what? Well, so everything. Because this means that God's love and care for us does not matter somewhere in heaven. It, it's your losses 
your anxieties, your disappointments, and actual griefs. That's what, that's God. God cares for you in the stuff of your everyday life. God doesn't send us text messages from the celestial shores. God is involved and wants to be involved in the stuff of everyday life. It says in the Psalms that he collects our tears in a bottle. And what I know, I know, we experience this every week, is that Jesus offers himself to us in bread and wine to commune with us, to, to draw close to us, and to assure us that we are members of his body and heirs of his kingdom. Past, attention, reversal, and the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your care for us. And we thank you that your love and grace is present in our lives, whether we like it or not, whether we ask for it or not, that you, Lord, are more determined to bring good into our lives than ourselves. I ask you, God, to help us become aware of your love for us. And through this somewhat opaque, difficult passage, that we would see your salvation, your mercy that's greater than judgment, shining through. Amen.